0: America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows.
1: Trump promises a truce on abortion, Hunter Biden becomes a 2A extremist, and... The slobs win. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Youth Podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are the Catholic Charities USA Donor Advised Fund and the How the World Works podcast from CEI. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way... You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, we now have an even more implausible promise from Donald Trump than settling the Russia-Ukraine war in 24 hours on Meet the Press this past weekend, the inaugural hosting Uh, episode from Kirsten Welker. She lands this Trump interview. She's pressing him on abortion, whether he'd sign a federal ban. He says, you know what? It's very easy. All you need to do, you just come up with a a date, you know, with a a number of of weeks, and you get both sides uh, happy with that, and both sides are going to be very happy with me. Democrats don't want to be radical on this issue, but by the way, there is some radicalism afoot in the land because there was this terrible heartbeat bill passed by, signed by Ron DeSantis in Florida, a really horrible mistake, uh, but if you want to put this issue to bed, to have finally peace on abortion after more than 50 years, another Trump administration is just what you want, what do you make of it.
2: Typically appalling seems like the two appropriate adjectives to fit here. If you have followed Donald Trump and his various statements about all kinds of political issues, but in particular abortion, going back to his days before he jumped into presidential politics, uh, Donald Trump described himself as pro-choice. He did not sound like a figure uh, who was aligned with the pro-life movement or the Christian right. And there were persistent rumors that at some point some of Trump's mistresses had had abortions, and that perhaps Trump had paid for them. None of that was ever proven. But look, when you're a playboy, you know, banging models in New York City in the 1980s and 1990s, you generally don't come across as the kind of person who's going to be an outspoken pro-life activist. And when Trump said, oh, I'm pro-life now, when he was running for president, um, there were many people who justifiably figured, look, he might be saying that now, he might be making all the right promises, he might be saying all the right things. But when push comes to shove, this guy's going to revert back to his usual instincts on this, and so I think you can look at Trump and say, "This is this is Chekhov's gun control." It was almost inevitable that he was going to at some point betray the pro life movement. Yes, everybody's very
1: happy. Not but- another Chekhov reference. <laughs> we, we we had a bunch uh, the last episode last week. Not that you needed to know that. Uh, there, not that there was any reason for you to know that, Jim.
2: But. Only because of Catherine Lopez did I not make a reference to Pavel Chekhov of Star Trek. <laughs> uh, but it, my point being is that there was a lot of foreshadowing to this and, you know, perhaps foreshadowing our next uh, dis- topic for discussion. There was a time Trump, you know, give a full throated endorsement of gun control and confiscating guns without due process. Like, did Trump, you know, when, when, when he feels like it, will completely embrace the arguments of the Democratic Party. Uh, and then usually he needs somebody to come up and say, actually, no, you don't want to say that. You don't want to have that position, et cetera. Uh, it is not – in the end, you know, you're familiar with with uh, movies and screenwriting. There's this concept of the MacGuffin. And the MacGuffin is the object that the protagonist wants to get, the lost arc, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction or something. Every political issue to Trump really is the MacGuffin. It doesn't really matter what it actually is. He doesn't actually care that much about – his stances on most of these issues maybe immigration or something there's something about that but in the end abortion is just a way for trump to try to get what he wants and he walks around with this utterly unearned and unjustifiable faith in his own ability to not you know as you meant, as you alluded to you know he, he can work out a deal between the russians and the ukrainians in in you know in a day or less and oh don't worry i'll be able to work out a deal between pro-lifers and pro-choicers uh just as easily it's not a problem um, you may recall that back after campaigning on how he was going to repeal Obamacare, like around February or March of after taking office, Trump in some press conference says nobody could have predicted that healthcare was so uh, complicated. Oh, really? Really? Nobody could have <laughs> predicted that? Only everyone who's ever looked at the issue of healthcare
1: mm-hmm. could have recognized how it was. So, so that, you know. that was a classic. That was a classic line, no doubt. So Noah, the the only deal here would be one that would be should be completely unacceptable to pro-lifers, so it's it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. But you know the, the reaction to this has been relatively muted from pro-life voices for uh I I think, you know, in part because they're they're calculating well, you know, he he uh keeps names and keeps tracks of who's criticized him and he could actually very well be present. Um, Again, and we don't want to uh, offend him, so we'll we'll kind of uh, stay quiet o- over this. When you know, four years ago, that would have been unimaginable.
3: I can sort of see a calculation that was made in 2016 by genuine, morally convicted pro life activists who had no illusions about who this guy was but who nevertheless thought that they needed him as much as he needed them, and that his influence and their influence balanced each other out and were mutually beneficial, and therefore they could compromise on some moral questions in order to pursue the greater good with him as the instrument. And I don't know if that calculation still holds Donald Trump in this interview reserved the harshest language that he had on this subject for Republicans. As Jim said, he criticized, as you said, I think, Jim, he criticized uh, Ron DeSantis' six-week ban, mm-hmm. said it was a terrible mistake. He said, quote, Republicans speak very art- inarticulately on this subject, <laughs> while he himself articulated nothing Uh, more substantive than, uh, or nothing very substantive at all when it comes to his position on abortion. If he has one, he said, quote, it could be a state or it could be a federal, doesn't actually articulate the subject in that sentence. Then he just says, I don't frankly care. Quote, I don't frankly care. And he doesn't. You can tell from his disposition how much this subject discomfits him. He does not like to talk about abortion. He doesn't have strong opinions on abortion. And then he goes out in defense of Democrats. Democrats don't want to see abortion in the seventh month, he says. Democrats don't want to be radical on this issue, he says. Well, you'd have to inform them. February 2022, they all voted, with the exception of Joe Manchin, for a bill that would, quote, codify Roe, but went well beyond it. Nullifying in the uh, state-level protections for unborn uh, children who survive outside the womb. um, Prohibit modest regulations, like informed consent laws and ultrasound requirements. Gavin Newsom is on television this weekend, or this week, rather, I think it was yesterday, talking about how government shouldn't be involved, and Democrats generally support restrictions after the point of viability, which he defines as 24 months. But viability is, an, is a moving target. It evolves with our technology. And it, 20 years ago, in 2003, there was no point at which you could survive past the, the 23rd week. No one survived. Today, 55% survive beyond 28 weeks of gestation. It's It's... It's a target that will evolve, that Donald Trump has just paid no attention to. And if he was inclined to be the fighter that he promotes himself as, he wouldn't necessarily have to say, as Mike Pence says, we can't give an inch and we have to constantly uh, reinforce our position and articulate our position and pound the table until we win. There's a Nikki Haley option here which is that we should fight where we have consensus on issues like banning late-term abortions, promoting adoptions via legislation, and strengthening con- uh, conscience protections for medical providers. That's good terrain to fight on, and you can av- you could advance beyond that by securing the victories that are the lowest-hanging fruit. But Trump doesn't want to have this fight. He, he wants compromises, any compromises, because he just doesn't care. And I don't know if the pro-life movement is as willing as it was in 2016 to subordinate their concerns about the man, the persona, to objectives that they could squeeze out of him because they both had a mutually beneficial relationship. I think that relationship has attenuated.
1: Yeah, so to be, be clear, of course, they were making this calculation largely after he won the nomination, right? Because they, they were all with with Cruz. Uh, and, and you had the the dynamic of Trump's base of support in 16 was different. It was somewhat conservatives who were strongest for him and very conservatives were skeptical and came along late. And now, obviously, he's, he's strongest with the, with the very conservative element of the party. But Charlie, we talked about this a lot. After 2016, Trump showed that fiscal conservatives, for better or worse, were s- somewhat weak in the Republican coalition. He could transgress what had been orthodoxy for a while on entitlement reform, on trade and get away with it, but we we all said, I think correctly at the time, you know, if he'd been bad on abortion, if he'd been bad on guns, he wouldn't have won the nomination. I believe if he had said this in September of 15, he wouldn't have won the Republican nomination, but now it's, uh, it's though, you know, we'll, we'll get a little bit of a test of this, I hope, but now he's bigger than party, he's bigger than any specific cause, and it looks like he can get away with it.
0: It should matter. It should matter per se, but it also should matter because pro-life Americans do not need Donald Trump in the same way as they did because Roe v. Wade is gone. The center of gravity now in our abortion politics is at the state level. There's a reason that Trump was criticizing Florida and Iowa and Georgia and others for having passed restrictions on abortion and that is that for the first time in 50 years those states have the latitude to do so in part because Donald Trump won in 2016 and then appointed with the help of the Federalist Society and the U.S. Senate three Supreme Court justices who realized correctly that Roe v. Wade was a lie. You could see a greater case for Trump then than you can now because the federal government has less to do with the question and should, in my view, have nothing to do with the question, although presumably will. Will it matter? I don't know. This is another of these cases where there are two frames that are placed around donald trump and his acolytes choose the one that they want at any given moment to turn whatever he says into a positive those two frames are one he fights he'll say the things no one else will he'll take on the left he'll take on the media he doesn't care about your pieties he'll break through the noise and two he is acutely aware of what sells and what doesn't, and he, unlike the others, wants to win. We move between these depending on where Donald Trump is. If Donald Trump says something that is unpopular or unpalatable or wrong, and he's criticized for it, his cheerleaders say, he's a fighter. Use frame one. Look at him in that way. Understand that he doesn't care whether or not the polls line up with him, he's going to do what's right. But if Donald Trump says something that is perhaps less popular but conservative, that would not be uttered by the people we would traditionally have called rhinos, well, suddenly, he's in frame two, which is all about winning elections. And the people who are criticizing him on principle... They have to go away. They have to understand that elections are too important for their purity and their blunt rhetoric. He can win whatever he does because of this. There is no way out of it if you are one of his opponents. You will see now Ron DeSantis and others saying, how dare Donald Trump say this? And immediately the center of gravity within the primary, shift toward electability. But if tomorrow Trump comes out and says something that is likely to really hurt him in a general election, and one of us or another of his rivals says, actually, that's not how you win in the United States, what's that going to do in the swing states? Well, then they will be weak. They'll be an establishment candidate. It's a non-falsifiable approach to politics that thus far has prevented anyone from bringing him down.
1: Yeah, so the lab test would be, you know, if Chris Sinunu had gotten in the race, the fact that he's pro pro-choice or functionally pro-choice, however you want to characterize it, would would have weighed heavily against him. <laughs> you know, but exactly. here you have Donald Trump with a version of a Chris Sinunu-ish position on abortion, it's probably not going to hurt. We'll see. Probably not going to hurt. But Jim Exit question to you. So Donald Trump is not a principled guy as uh, has been established. He's not a policy maven, as, as we all know, but he's canny, right? So He's canny. And obviously, th- this is for a long time now. He's been uncomfortable where the abortion debate is going. He's thought it's really hurt the, the party, and the party needs to find a way out. So exit question is, is Donald Trump totally right about that, largely right about that? somewhat right about that a little right about that or not right about that at all rich are you going any further is there anything beyond
2: <laughs> not right at all is there some sort of like <laughs> I go negative i can't go astronomically negative astronomically metaphysically wrong <laughs> creating a black hole of wrongness that is sucking <laughs> other people into a further point of wrongness because that would be my option uh, you mentioned he's canny uh Rich, if he were really that canny, would he have an approval rating that's been around 40% pretty much the entirety of the time since he left office and disapproval rating up at 55%? I mean, isn't if he's canny, isn't some of it that he's good at mitigating the damage from the other stupid things he says?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can define his canniness how, how you like, but I mean, the other side of the ledger, he has a, a what appears to be an iron grip on one political party such that he's going to win the nomination again and perhaps be president of the United States again. So... He can't be a, a complete political idiot, although he obviously creates a lot of uh, 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 radioactivity around himself that's unnecessary. But that's a, a totally wrong? If that's as far that's as, far as the, the, the meter will go, then yes. you know. Okay. Noah Rothman.
3: I don't think he's totally wrong. There are signals, environmental signals, that Republicans have gotten that confuse the issue. When it's not just abortion on the ballot. Look, Ron DeSantis signed this six week ban. Everybody knew that was coming in 2022. He won by 20 points. Brian Kemp signed a similar restriction. He won. Mike DeWine in Ohio. He won. When the issue is a proxy or abortion or a direct ballot measure on abortion, as it was in Kansas or in Ohio on those referenda, they get a pretty resounding no on the pro life position. So he's not without environmental signals to justify this notion that the post dobbs environment is a complicated one for Republicans in ways they haven't figured out how to navigate just yet. His option there, what he wants to do is surrender the issue entirely, abandon it, and give up on that prospect of, of advancing pro-life initiatives. The poll suggests that there are roughly 30% of Republicans who are not full restrictionists when it comes to abortion. A minority, but a sizable one. But it's still a minority, there's still a very small number of Republican voters, especially Republican primary voters. So what he's arguing here is a general election strategy that may not bear fruit for him in the primary.
1: So Charlie, let me let me restate it again so we'll get, get back around to wh- whether he's right okay. in his judgment. Totally right, largely right, somewhat right, a little right, not right at all.
0: I think he's somewhere between a little right and somewhat right. He has noticed, correctly, that the public is not where the Republican Party is on abortion. That is a really complicated minefield to navigate for Republicans. But, once again the fact that he's noticed it and is articulating it seems to belie the whole point of him as he is sold, as somebody who is a fighter for the base, who represents retribution. I think that was his word, a Mm -hmm. word I do not like being used in politics, I hasten to add. So he's a mess on it. But if the question is, is Donald Trump right analytically, to propose that where republicans are on abortion is not where the median voter is then yes he's correct yeah i agree
1: with that i think he's somewhat right what i fear is there are a lot of republicans who think he's largely right whether they're saying it or not Um, but Even though Trump is somewhat right, his his solution is uh, morally and politically uh, wrong and and unworkable, again, unless it's just a, a functional surrender. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode. Giving the gift of real estate is as easy... As one, two, three, And now that donation can become the cornerstone of a Catholic Charities USA Donor Advised Fund, or DAF. Transform lives and earn a tax deduction by donating real estate and creating a Catholic Charities USA DAF. This DAF is a dedicated charitable account that gives you a simple, flexible, tax-efficient way to support your favorite charities. And you can use it to make an impact on the lives of people in need. When you generously give your property, you support the Catholic Charities' mission of helping those in need help themselves, Starting the process is easy. Begin by visiting CatholicCharitiesUSA.org. That's CatholicCharitiesUSA.org to connect with its knowledgeable staff members. They'll walk you through the process of opening a DAF today. Please check it out again. CatholicCharitiesUSA.org. So, Charlie, we got uh, an interesting constitutional argument being advanced by none other than... Hunter Biden, uh, at, at, at his core, obviously a profound constitutionalist who has followed the jurisprudence around the Second Amendment very, very closely, and is now going to advance the argument in his defense in this uh, against his gun charge, that you know what, this is not constitutional. You cannot take my constitutional right to bear arms away from me just because I happened to use drugs. Maybe it's one thing to take it away from me if I'm high on drugs, but just because I've, I've used drugs, that is not enough of a, a warrant to crimp this right. What do you make of it?
0: Well, the first thing I make of it is that it's extremely funny. We now have the son of the President of the United States threatening to use as his legal defense a Supreme Court decision that the President of the United States has publicly railed about on many occasions and seeks to see overturned, and to claim under that decision that a federal law that Joe Biden championed and helped write is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. That is funny in anybody's terms, and it will be even funnier if somehow this case works its way up the chain under the name Biden. We come to talk of Hella, McDonald, Bruin, and Biden <laughs> in the future. The argument here, which Hunter Biden's lawyers have been threatening to make for months, and I think was one of the reasons that the DOJ tried to dispense with these cases in the corrupt way that it did with the plea deal that fell apart, is that the law that prohibits Americans who use drugs from purchasing firearms and makes it a crime for them to lie on the form they're obliged to fill in before they purchase a firearm is per se unconstitutional. The Bruin decision last year was not about this explicitly, but the holding in that was that Second Amendment cases ought to be considered by historical analog. That is to say, if there was no equivalent sort of law at the time that the Second Amendment was written, and perhaps at the time when it was incorporated under the 14th Amendment, then the modern law cannot stand. That analog doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to be within the ballpark. And Hunter Biden's lawyers, as with some other gun rights groups, are arguing that there was no historical practice of prosecuting people or permanently removing their Second Amendment rights if they were users of illicit substances or they had a pattern of drug use. And I think they're right. If you look back to the time of the founding and the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, There were some laws that permitted the government to disarm you temporarily or even to prosecute you if you were under the influence of, say, alcohol. If you were drunk and disorderly and carrying a firearm, you could be arrested. You could have that firearm removed until you sobered up. But there were no laws that said if you drank per se... You weren't allowed to own a gun, or having a gun or carrying a gun was illegal. There was no form that said, do you frequent the saloon? I don't see why that would be different with drugs. Marijuana in particular has been around a long time. So while I think that there is room for laws that make it illegal to do what hunter biden allegedly did which is flash his gun around on camera while on drugs the breadth of the law in question probably doesn't have a historical analog and he may be right and if he is right and he prevails on these grounds he will set a precedent that will then apply to everyone else and might lead to a change to the form 4473, which is used every single time a commercial gun transaction is processed. This would be, if Hunter Biden's lawyers get this right, quite a big change in our drug laws, in our Second Amendment laws, and in the processes that we use for the regulation of commercial firearms transfers. And I'm afraid I can't help but find that sardonically amusing
1: <laughs> what, what tangled webs we weave so Jim is, is, it, is it your guess total speculation might this account for some of the hesitation that David Weiss the prosecutor up there the Trump prosecutors he's always a, identified all those the democratic states so uh, the democratic senators aren't you know it's going to be a, a, a pick that they, they sign off on and are happy with but does this account for some of his hesitation at actually yes. charging Hunter with this
2: it may well. I, I think it's probably a smaller factor than just the general overall stress that comes with attempting to bring a criminal prosecution of the current of the son of the current president. And the recognition that even if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, you're going to have um, people accusing you of being on a political witch hunt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I do kind of like the thing that jumps out about me, and I just, just put up a corner post about this a little while ago, is... Um, Joe Biden has the advantages of incumbency, but he also has some really unique weaknesses that almost anybody else in the Democratic Party would not have, uh, most notably that he turns 81 in a couple of months. But I also think, like, the Hunter Biden is this really big, glaring complication for the Democratic argument in 2024. And one of the arguments is on guns, the argument that your Democrats are traditionally the party of gun control. They're traditionally the party of believing that you have to be a responsible citizen. And if you aren't a responsible citizen, your gun should be taken away. And here is the president's son being you who know, has been now been indicted on three counts and two of them involve lying to investigators, um, which complicates that. This idea that, you know, no, know, we as Democrats believe that everyone must be a responsible gun owner. And similarly, one of the Biden arguments is, well, we've given more money, hired a lot more IRS agents, and we believe in making everybody pay their fair share of taxes. And the president's son basically forgot to pay taxes for a year or two. Um, the, you know, again, generic Midwestern Democratic governor doesn't have these sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the You know, any other – even Kamala Harris, like she doesn't have any grandchildren, but if she did, she'd probably know how many she had.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Gavin Newsom was on – I guess it was CNN – the, maybe last night and you know he was asked about Joe and he's like oh you know he's a, he's a master he's a, he's a pro he's accomplished more than anyone possibly could have imagined and Kamala Harris she's been part of that team so she's great too and then then he was asked about Hunter and he's like i, I don't love you know the influence peddling <laughs> I, I don't love that which the translation of course is this is totally atrocious I, and indefensible and that, should yeah. be intoler- intolerable. yeah but Noah.
3: So one of the things that you're allowed to do as a defendant is to argue that you're being corruptly prosecuted. It's one of the ways that you can explain why the evidence against you is so strong, because the government has it out for you and is doing things nefariously. That's basically what Hunter's argument is here, is essentially that his dad's interpretation of the Constitution is tyrannical. And we haven't even really talked much about his Suit against the IRS, which is targeted mostly at these two whistleblowers, Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, but not entirely. The language of the suit maintains that it was the decision of the IRS employees, their representatives, and others to disregard their obligations and repeatedly and intentionally publicly disclose and disseminate Mr. Biden's tax information. This is all internecine warfare. It's the de- it's it's Hunter Biden against his father's administration, multiple multiple executive agencies that his father controls. So then how does the AP write this up? I kid you not, the headline reads, Hunter Biden has gone on the offensive against Republicans. That is a full (laughs) sentence, beginning, middle and end. And what did they use to justify that? What's the substantive argument that they make? Because these whistleblowers testified at a Republican-led hearing, the idea here is that this complicates the Republican investigation into (laughs) Joe Biden and also That Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's allies have argued, quote, the plea deal fell through in part because the Justice Department officials bowed to pressure from Republicans. This is nonsense. Republicans are all but spectators to this thing. They're an investigative body, for the most part, with the exception of getting out a little bit over their skis with this impeachment inquiry, which is just really a, a cosmetic change to what was already the ongoing investigation by the Oversight Committee. They're spectators to this thing. They're observing as Hunter Biden is now compelled to go to war with his father's administration because his father's administration sought, as Charlie said, corruptly to try to indemnify him against all future prosecutions, not just this one.
1: So, Noah, have you, have you looked at the, the IRS thing enough to have an, an opinion on the merits of Hunter's complaint?
3: I don't know if I can mm-hmm. say with any authority uh, whether or not Hunter Biden's tax information was improperly disclosed. It might be might have been. He might have a valid argument there. But what he's arguing essentially is that the IRS has it out for him, just as he's arguing as the Justice Department has it out for him. This is not a Republican issue. Joe Biden and his administration are prosecuting Hunter Biden, and Hunter Biden is arguing he's being unjustly unjustly persecuted by the Justice Department and the IRS, one of the least trusted law enforcement agencies in the United States.
1: Extra question to you, Charlie, and this might be one where we just want to defer to you, but uh, Jim and Noah, you're, you're welcome to have opinions, of course, but in, in your view, Charlie, do, does uh, will Hunter Biden prevail? Or would you be surprised if he prevailed on the gun, gun argument?
0: I think under the standard laid out in Bruin, Hunter Biden has a really good chance of demonstrating that the law's under which he's been charged, have no historical analogue in either the 18th or 19th centuries. I don't know if the matter will get that far, or how the case will play out. There's a whole bunch of criminal procedure that I don't understand, and I don't know how high up it will be appealed, or whether lower court judges will agree that He's correct under Bruin and so forth. But if this were to make it to the Supreme Court, for example, I think a straightforward application of Bruin would see Hunter Biden's lawyers prevail, yes.
1: Jim Geerty. Uh,
2: I will defer to Charlie's judgment on this. Um, I, I kinda look at the Hunter Biden defense team as you know doing the spaghetti strategy, cooking everything and throwing it up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, So I'm not surprised that they made an argument that sounds outlandish, or made an argument that like maximizes the political damage to Hunter Biden's father. Um, but you know, look, I, very hard to predict how uh, courts will handle this thing. But if Charlie says he's got a chance, then it, that's enough to convince me. Noah,
3: I too will defer to Charlie on the issue of uh, the firearms charges. And as you say, I mean, the more I think about it, as the question you asked, does he have a leg to stand on in the IRS argument? I mean, yeah, probably. So where does that leave us? (laughs) Is Hunter Biden actually being persecuted by by the Biden administration? Are we going to have to make that case? Are Democrats going to have to make that case?
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way out of it, right, Noah? If he can make the case that he was treated unfairly by the IRS in any persuasive way, there's only two things that Joe Biden and his... Friends can say. One is that Joe Biden is prosecuting his own son. You're damn right. And the other is that Joe Biden is not really in control of his administration. And this is some rogue
1: agency operative that did this to his own son, neither of which is particularly salutary. I don't know. I think it could be a good argument. It just shows how fair. The Biden Justice Department <laughs> is, is persecuting Donald Trump and Joe Biden's son. So I'm uh, cracking
2: down on those Renardo Wells. So I've
1: yeah. had enough of these guys. How, how'd you like Doc Brandon now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's hear from our second sponsor as listeners of National Review Podcast. You already have all the riveting political commentary and news analysis you need, but good news there's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend Kevin Williamson offering a fresh perspective on something we all do work. To make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a great outfit where we have a lot of friends, to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world well actually works. Each episode, Kevin has intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash, so be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to your pods or visit cei.org slash podcasts to find the latest episodes of the show. So, Noah, we had a huge event in the United States Senate. Chuck Schumer gave way to John Fetterman and... Perhaps some others, but John Fetterman is the most notable example. And said this dress code that it you know, wasn't written down, but has been a, a, a matter of, of norms uh, and uh, informal rule in the Senate for you know basically since the Senate has existed is going to go away. So John Fetterman can walk around in a hoodie and baggy shorts like he just got up from the couch from a full weekend. Of watching college and NFL games, surrounded by empty pizza boxes, maybe doing a little light yard work at half times during these games, and now he's at uh, the United States Senate. Fetterman is uh, dismissing all the uh, the criticism of this, saying it's no big deal. You know, why don't you talk about something um, more important? What do you make of it?
3: Well, you said it all. Um, The reason why this rule is going away is because John Fetterman would not abide by it. He simply wouldn't. He had no respect for the office or for the chamber in which he serves or his colleagues, and so the rules had to change to accommodate him. There's something very analogous to the way in which uh, the generation coming into power now uh, behaves and acts as though The world should conform to their preferences, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. But he paired this behavior, his slovenly appearance, with public comments that just reinforced the notion, if you needed any further confirmation of it, that the man is a churlish lout. He goes on MSNBC with Chris Hayes and talks about how Republicans need to, quote, go hump a different leg, and how uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, is uh, criticizing him while at the same time showing uh, you know, promoting on cardboard pay- pictures, big pictures of uh, Hunter Biden's dingaling, using that word. That's his quote. Quote: Aren't there more important things we should be talking about than whether I dress like a slob? That's his line. And then he goes out and starts quote tweeting with Adam Gentleson, who's his chief of staff and probably puppet master. I think a lot of these li- those lines come out of his mouth, and he subsequently promotes them. Um. Goes after Ron DeSantis. I dress like he campaigns, meaning terribly. Goes after Nate Silver. I dress like you predict, meaning terribly. The idea here, oh no, and then lastly, this morning is a good one. Quote, I figure if I take up vaping and grabbing the hog during a live musical, they'll make me a folk hero, meaning going after Lauren Bobert. He's behaving like a disgusting bore and dressing like a disgusting bore, totally owning this persona. And Democrats are now finding themselves in the position of having to endorse this as though it's just kind of amusing, a winsome feature of this guy's character. It's grotesque. It's decline. Ron DeSantis called it decline, and he's correct. It's a choice to accept a decline in the standards that we expect from our elected representatives. And nobody who objects to this is doing so in in defense of some outmoded, anachronistic idea of what decorum used to be and we should all need to evolve. They're holding on to the standards that have that guide proper conduct, that guide behaviors that you would expect from people in positions of authority, that I would expect my children to behave, how I would expect my children to behave, certainly how I expect authorities in position of power to behave. And the diminution of those standards, the degradation of those standards is something to which we should all object.
1: Yeah. So he doesn't deserve to be a senator. He he just doesn't but Charlie uh, you're, you're probably like like me you know I'm not hu- huge into to formal dress if I, if I can dress down I'd I prefer it. I had this uh, green hoodie I got from a, a radio station years ago that I just love. It's comfortable. I'd wear it everywhere. Eventually, my wife got so sick of it. She's like, you know, Rich, you're disgracing our family. Do you have to wear that thing everywhere? And now it's disappeared. I think she probably threw it out on me without without me knowing. But I would never wear it, you know, on TV or to a business meeting or, you know, giving a talk or, or certainly not uh, walking the halls of the United States senator, uh, the Senate, if I if I were a, a senator. And dress matters, you know. You, you would notice and feel disrespected if sh- someone showed up at your wedding, you know, in jeans or a t-shirt. No one would think to show up at a funeral in jeans and t-shirt. Right. You dress appropriately as a sign of respect to yourself. But also to the people around you and to the occasion or the the institution that you're participating in and this is like a very minimal standard. It's not as though you know they, they have to wear a suit and a, a tie to the gym and you'll see pictures of them some, sometimes coming coming back from going to or coming back from the gym and they're dressed down like anyone else would be. But when you're on the floor of the Senate, just look decently right show respect for the institution you know a judge is not we're not going to consider a judge the same unless he or she is wearing a black robe a police officer you know they're undercover police officers but there's there's a reason why they wear uniforms and this isn't a uniform but it's just showing a certain basic regard for what is you know still a a marvelous institution the time and place
0: restrictions i live on the beach I spend most of my time in shorts and a T-shirt and flip-flops. But that's because those are the clothes that you wear when you're hanging around your house or the beach. When you're in other circumstances, you wear other clothes. This is one of the reasons that, of course, this was the least important thing that happened that day, but it's one of the reasons that the photographs of the rioters in the Capitol building are so jarring to look at because you're contrasting people with their shirts off and their faces painted, with the Senate chamber, the place where the United States national government declared war after Pearl Harbor and took measures during the Civil War. These moments, they matter, and these restrictions matter. I can't put it better than you did. The funeral analogy is perfect. Why do we dress up at a funeral? It's a sign of respect for the scale of what has just happened to someone and their family. Why do we dress up at a wedding? Because we understand that we are marking an occasion that should be momentous and all things being equal, permanent. Why do military officers wear certain clothes? Because they are demonstrating their commitment to their country and to a set of principles to which they've taken an oath. I don't think there is anything about the United States Congress that should set it in a different category than somebody at any of those events. I think what those people are doing is momentous they are wielding enormous power they're wielding enormous trust they are standing in the same venue as have giants within our history people who were obliged to deal with all manner of terrible and weighty issues and make terrible and weighty decisions so you know to to me this is just a total disregard for the the time and the place in which they find themselves as opposed to when they're lolling around at home
1: or jogging or watching tv or whatever
0: in in which case it just doesn't matter
1: yeah jim another thing that's galling about this you'll see all the pictures and the video of john fetterman dressed like garbage it's not even good casual clothes it just looks like garbage with his press aid, with a suit and a tie, right? Because if the, if the press aide showed up like that, everyone would say, kid, what the heck are you doing? You can't dress like that. But because he's a senator, he can disrespect the institution. I mean, even if he showed up to be a barista at Starbucks, they'd say, no, you can't dress like that. We have you know this kind of ba- basic uh, uniform that represents our, our standard for how, how we want to look around each other and our customers. But because he's a senator... He can, uh, he has this, this privilege, that, Rich, this by the way,
3: visitors are still required to wear a suit mm-hmm. and tie.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Rich, before I elaborate on my answer, I want to begin with a public service announcement. If you really hate wearing a suit and tie, maybe the job of U.S. senator is not for you. Um, most people probably at this point would have noticed that male senators usually wear suits and ties Fetterman has C-SPAN, right? I mean, it's available on most most cable systems. He he really he's he's seen the U.S. Senate before, right? It, this this should not have come as some giant shock to him. This is not what outrages me the most about John Fetterman, though. What outrages me the most about John Fetterman is that on October fifteenth, twenty twenty-two, Dr. Clifford Chen, Fetterman's doctor, wrote a, a letter that was published by the campaign saying, "quote Overall, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is well and shows strong commitment to maintaining good fitness and health practices." Quote, he has no work restrictions and can work full duty in public office. Now, we noticed during the campaign that Fetterman still had a great deal of difficulty understanding questions. He still needs the device that translates speech into text. He still has trouble speaking. He still has, you know, all all kinds of other issues. Um, Everyone's hearts can and should go out to the man for the severe depression that he was dealing with. But I point out, even of the updated numbers... John Fetterman has missed 34.4% of the votes in the Senate this year. And it's not just because of the time he spent in Walter Reed. He's missed 14% of the votes from July to September. Now, look, I don't know whether he's had other issues he had to deal with, family issues, travel issues, whatever it is, fine. But he's not showing up very often. Um, And so I'm just kind of left with this, this argument. He doesn't look the part. He refuses to look the part. He refuses to, you know, do that, and he doesn't show up for work in significant amounts of time. Um, and as you, you guys have laid out, that when his press appearances, he he does this. If you go back and read what built John Fetterman's reputation it was his appearance I wrote about this back during the the Senate race Mm -hmm. almost every profile begins by saying oh my god he looks like a hell's angel or oh my goodness he looks like a guy who's fixing your your auto repair or oh my goodness he's your you know the guy who shows up at your house when your air conditioning breaks down by the way he doesn't do these things He's, he's not a former factory worker or anything like that he's actually got a very white collar background but he dresses and looks highly unusual and once you put John Fetterman into the Senate you put him into a suit, he just looks like this really big bald guy in a suit. He doesn't stand out nearly as much. So I kind of wonder how much John Fetterman's brand, how much John mm-hmm. Fetterman's political identity, is based upon his appearance. And yeah. putting him in a suit takes that away. Yeah. And if you take away that, what has he got?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really that that's a really important point. So exit question, and maybe we'll double barrel. But let's let's go first. Noah, the question to you: If Republicans take back the senate next time they will reinstate the dress code yes or no Uh,
3: they should um i don't know if they will but they should i would think that would be uh, an easy one to do and it would provoke a fight because as jim says this is his brand and john fetterman seems to have a uh, higher estimation of the political capital that he has access to than he actually does. So I imagine that he would probably try to make it a big thing, but in, in similar ways as Republicans made um, the uh, uh, putting mags in front of the chambers where they would walk around them and they would protest them and they would make a big stink over them in the wake of January 6th. And I can see John Fetterman spoiling for a fight uh, in defense of his slovenly dress.
1: Yeah, you know who was who really foursquare in favor of the dress code in the house? was John Boehner. And I had this experience once with John Boehner. I was at the Breakers, of course, in, in Palm Beach. And it was a dead winter, and I was taking a little walk. You know It was beautiful there. And I see this figure in the distance standing near the hotel smoking a cigarette. He's like the coolest guy I've ever seen. You know, his suit is perfect. He's smoking, you know, I don't know Dean Martin or something. And I get closer and closer. And, of course, it's John Boehner. You know, tanned, incredibly tanned and smooth. He was there for like a marijuana conference because he, you know, that's one way he cashed in afterwards is, is representing one of these uh, uh, legalized marijuana outfits. But anyway, Charlie, do you think if Republicans take re- retake the Senate that they'll reinstate the dress code?
0: Yes, I think it's one of the first things that they'll do. And I suspect it will be popular in the country at large because I think people like to see those who represent them being held to a standard, and that's one of the standards that is most visible. Jim Gertie.
2: I think they can. I think they should. I think they will, if the Republicans ever win back control of the Senate someday. And uh, I would also point out, I strongly suspect that after that time, Fetterman will have a note from his doctor arguing that wearing hoodies and sweatshirts (laughs) is a necessary medical treatment.
1: I think, yes, they will reinstate it. No, to you, let's double barrel it as uh, suggested. I think you mentioned Lauren Boebert. Do we care about the Lauren Boebert Beetlejuice story? It got a lot of attention the last couple days. Yes or no?
3: Yes, we do care. Because for the same reason we expect our elected representatives to uh, ob- observe proper decorum in the chamber, we don't expect them to sacrifice Uh, all uh, proper conduct outside of the chamber either. And what um, Lauren Bubbert did, which was to be caught on uh, camera at a uh, live musical theater uh, event using a a vape, product vape, vaping nicotine and uh, engaged in public displays of affection that were a little graphic <laughs> and, and disregarding uh, her fellow audience members who politely asked her to stop and she declined to and she was ejected from the, the place or the, the theater. I I vape. I love musical theater. At no point would I ever engage in these two behaviors <laughs> inside uh, an, an act of musical theater. It's just a profound act of disrespect. Not just have, for have the you, people around you in the theater, but for the office that you hold.
1: So yes, you, absolutely, you, I care about it. Have you seen Beetlejuice?
3: I have not seen Beetlejuice. I'm aware of it. Um, I, you know, the, the newer properties. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more of a of an old school guy when it comes to properties, but uh, I'm, I'm willing to suspend disbelief and take a look at this thing. But, but the tra- the creation of like making Back to the Future into a musical, which they did, like it's the sort of thing I just find adulterating these products from my youth. In ways that I I find distasteful. But the score might be good. The score might save it.
0: Charlie. I think it is appalling behavior on every front. First off, what are you doing behaving like that in a public auditorium? I don't care who she is. I've seen this discussed as if it matters whether she's a Republican or a Democrat or a fighter or a rhino or a squish or a genius or a moron. It doesn't. She's an adult. She's what, thirty-six? It doesn't matter whether she has children or grandchildren. In fact, she has both. It doesn't matter if she's recently divorced or happily married. You just don't do that in an auditorium. That is a basic standard of civilization that she violated. And then she made it worse, having done it, by saying, do you know who I am? Yeah. Actually, that's the last thing you should do when you're a politician. <laughs> to combine this with the Fetterman discussion, Rich, you said that behind Fetterman we saw a congressional aide Mm -hmm. who was well-dressed. I'd rather it were the other way around. I'd rather Fetterman set the standard, said, I'm the senator, and his aide were underdressed. And the same is true of Lauren Bobert here. The last person I want in a free republic such as ours pulling the do-you-know-who-I-am card are the most powerful people, Mm -hmm. are the people who we have trusted with control of the Treasury and the military. I want her to hold herself to a higher standard than some random, and then if caught, to say, all right, I'll leave. Not to try and contrive some separate process by which she's let be. And I'd rather that she hadn't lied about it, which she did. The only reason that I have rolled my eyes about this rather than written about it is because it is precisely what i expected from her Mm -hmm. did anyone read that story and say really (laughs) lauren bobert did that (laughs) i'd be shocked if chuck grassley did that but lauren bobert is in a different arena but yeah i care i care everyone should care this this should in a just world lead her not only to lose the next time she runs but to lose the primary before she
1: has a chance yeah, so so what that theater needed was a Kevin Williamson. Kevin was briefly <laughs> a New York City folk hero for for grabbing some uh, woman's cell phone at, a, at a, a, a play or whatever it was and, and throwing it because she just w- would not put it down. So you needed Kevin to grab that vaping device and give it a, give it a good chuck. Jim. First of all, Rich, I just I hope it was the
2: vaping device Kevin grabbed. Oh yes. So I try hard not to think about Lauren Boebert or allocate any more brain cells to her than I have to. Um, I haven't written about this particular controversy. I don't think I will, but I'm as appalled as anybody else. You're a public figure. You have a a duty, a responsibility to behave appropriately in public, particularly once you're warned and then once you ignore the warnings. But I I was just going to observe that in the end, Lauren Boebert is playing a different role than most of us would expect a member of Congress to play. That in the end, like, you know, if you're a member, if you're elected to Congress, you want to have a say in what laws get passed and what policies get enacted and and involved in the country's government. And policy bores the Lauren Boeberts of the world. Policy is boring. Policy is detailed. What they want to do is they want to be a star. They want to be a reality show star. So what I'd really love to do is to take mm-hmm. her and a half dozen other members of Congress and just, just have them step down, shuffle them out or something. And we can create a reality show, whether you want it to be Big Brother, Survivor, whatever you think will get the best. Let's just let them be reality show stars because that's what they really want in life. They want to be celebrities. They're not interested in government. Government is boring. Government is work. They want to be stars. You know, what? go off and do that and
1: leave the government to people who actually care about these things. Yeah, Jim, Jim, you're so right about being a star and a certain kind of star, right? You know, a reality star. And the Boebert thing happened simultaneously with a story I didn't pay a lot of attention to, but I I must confess I watched the video. Is this this woman who – she was on season five of of something or other, and she has a little bit of an Instagram following, and she was having some dispute – with uh, with a fellow passenger on a plane I, I don't know over over what but at at some point someone started filming this was amused by it and she's like you know go ahead to you know f- film me i'm instagram famous Baby, you know, so the, the, do you know who I am? Is like one of the worst sentences in the English language and should never be spoken by anyone with any class or grace. But unfortunately, that's not that, you know, a category that does not include all our congressmen. If you and have women. to caveat famous with anything, you're not famous. Yeah, exactly. Famous. That's what people pointed out. You know, yeah, if when, you're, and you're flying coach as well. It's a pretty good sign. <laughs> when people don't know who you are, that's why you should be carrying the American Express card. <laughs> All right, quick plug for NR Plus. Uh, I'll skip everything else and just say it's, it's a really important way to support our valuable journalism. We need pay people to pay up a little bit, not a lot, just, uh, just uh, a little bit. We have great first-time deals running at any given moment, so please consider signing up today, tomorrow, next week, whenever, and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit... a th- few other things before we go. Noah, you actually had this massive kid's birthday party that you previewed last week. How did it go?
3: Yes, I've been previewing birthday month. We're more than halfway through, blessedly. Uh, It went really, really well, really well. It was a great party. I'm very proud of my wife for pulling it off because I let her do a lot of the work for this thing. She told, she pointed me in the right direction and told me what to do. And I did that, but she did most of the planning, if not all the planning. And one of the things that she did that I'm very proud of her for was um, this, the gift bag or whatever. And this turns out to be cost effective, but she ended up buying a a cup making machine with these tin tumblers Hmm. and surveyed all the parents. Like what is your kid into? And then she made um, personalized decals with their name and then, blasted them onto this cup so they have this dishwasher-safe tumbler that's personalized to them, and everybody loved it. It was a really clever gift-making idea. So if you're looking for uh, gift bags, that's a great idea. Go out and purchase a cup-making machine and then devote uh, the next 36 hours of your life to making cups.
1: Wow, that's that's very ambitious. Jim Garrity, you witnessed our robot future with uh, some, some some robot uh, delivery devices at the campus of George Mason University, is that correct? It is.
2: Uh, so, first of all, we celebrate Rosh Hashanah in the Garrity household, and in one of those facts that just seems impossible, no matter how many times I say it, hear it, or read it, peers of mine have a daughter who's now going to college. They that. That I cannot be. Oh, you know, I have high schoolers. That's that's bad enough. But no, 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 it can't be possible. That any of us could be old enough to have a kid in college. Well, uh, this young woman goes to George Mason, not too far from our house. We asked if she wanted to join us. She said sure. And I go over, and I'm getting there. To, I'm providing her a ride. I'm sitting there, and I see these little wheeled robots. They're little, you know, almost like your, your coolers with four wheels. A little flag up there, so because you know, so you don't notice them. And they're not just going around the campus. Like they go to the crosswalk and then they stop. And there must be some motion detector or something because it it does the equivalent of looking both ways. And then it crosses the crosswalk. And I just kind of marveled. This looked like something out of science fiction that now we live in a world where there are robots that instead of having an Uber Eats driver or uh, your pizza delivery guy, now you have these little robots rolling around. Um, Delivering food to people And I realized, wow, one, this is going to be such a big problem For the the job market That all these delivery jobs will disappear And I'm pretty sure this is how Skynet begins So I I ran over, I knocked them over I destroyed them, and now thankfully Under orders from John Connor, we will not die In a terrible robot apocalypse
1: (laughs) Charlie, you've been drinking blood orange Cosmopolitans
2: Yeah, so do you guys
0: think The Cosmopolitan is a woman's drink? It's very strong for any drink Well, it's very strong. That's one of the great things about it. But is it a woman's drink? I wondered about
2: this because I... Usually, but not necessarily.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Anyway, whatever it is, it's absolutely delicious. My wife was drinking one about two years ago, and I tried a bit and I thought, oh, I love this. But the, the famous beach bar, Rich, the famous beach bar has a blood orange cosmopolitan, and it's just absolutely delicious. I can't drink enough of them i enjoyed having one the other night and watching the gators beat the tennessee volunteers in a massive
1: upset so i was micro aggressed against as an old houston oilers fan i was wearing the other day my um houston Oilers warren moon jersey and a really nice guy at the local pizza places like are you a miami fan and I, t- I didn't i didn't know what he was talking about, and th- th- then I realized he had misidentified. Uh, Houston is baby blue. It's not aqua, okay? It's not aqua, and Warren Moon was not a Miami Dolphin. So uh, I-, I was mildly offended by this. I, uh, I took the hit, though, and, and smiled and-, and corrected him, but uh, the Houston Oilers uniform and helmet, uh, clearly top five uh, uniform and helmet of um, NFL History, and I will not uh, I will not tolerate any disagreement on that question. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick?
2: Well, as usual, a lot of strong uh, options this week, but I decided to pick Luther Ray Abel's Corner Post, Boris Yeltsin's pudding pop anniversary, pointing out that uh, this is the anniversary of Boris Yeltsin going to a Texas grocery store and kind of recognizing the inevitable consequences of the capitalist system and the communist system and how the supermarket in you know t- suburbs of Texas nothing you know no, not, not any grand store just the sheer unbelievable variety of options that the you know free market had provided people to buy and how the soviet stores were still you know skimp you know often the stores were the shelves were bare and they didn't have any of this stuff it is you know both a fascinating demonstration of the power of the free market and a good warning sign to the city of Chicago, which apparently wants to emulate the Soviet Union and start running its own grocery
1: stores. Noah?
3: The great Yuval Levin, uh, on Constitution Day, wrote, what is the Constitution for? It's a perfect illustration of why there are no settled arguments. He wrote this in response to some rather rote arguments about how the Constitution is unequal to the challenges before us today, in part because it doesn't allow for unalloyed majoritarianism, and he dives into some of the arguments that the founders were having and how satisfied they were with the outcome of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, in part because it was such an it produced such an extraordinary document defined by compromise, and Yuval goes into why the Constitution is the. Uh, longest survived constitution on the planet, and um, it's really important to uh, to read. You've all always, but particularly this uh, installment.
1: Charlie, what's your pick?
0: My pick is Jim Garrity, who calls on President Biden to protect Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Now, if anyone from the Bulwark is listening, this is not an endorsement of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It is an endorsement of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. continuing to live, which I think would be a good thing, especially given the history of the Kennedy family, which doesn't have great luck, does it? This seems to me to be a no-brainer. I don't believe a single word that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says. I do know that if a major politician, a famous politician, the only real challenger to President Biden, were killed... It would be really, really bad for our politics, horrendously bad for our politics, so bad for our politics it's hard to even convey. I don't understand how a government that is $30 trillion in debt, that spends money like water, has not yet realized that it might be good to authorize some protection for this man who is running around the country making speeches and trying to take the Democratic nomination nomination away from Joe Biden. And I think Jim Carrey shares my uh, bewilderment here and has uh, expressed it uh, better than I can. So, Protect Robert F. Kennedy Jr. by Jim
1: Garrity. So, my pick, I, I have to say, I, I'm just shocked. I'm shocked by this piece. It's by our friend Abigail Anthony titled The Averageness of Taylor Swift. So I don't know how anyone could write such thing about the most talented female (laughs) singer-songwriter of the last 50 years, but Abigail did. Everything she writes is, uh, uh, is, is great. So even though this content is hateful to me... I do admire the way she, she carried it out. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast, and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thank you to Catholic Charities and CEI. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.